Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and we are back with full-length interviews. I want to just extend a lot of gratitude to all of the amazing people who submitted their dispatches during pandemic times. And these mini episodes have been, I don't know, extremely powerful and compelling and distressing and empowering. And I really encourage you, if you haven't already, to uh, take a listen back. Um, It provides a really interesting record of the kind of impact of the global pandemic on our queer bodies as it developed and continues to develop. So um, thank you to everyone who participated. Um, Before I introduce our very honorable uh, guests, um, who I'm just thrilled to Uh, share with you. I have a couple updates. I guess the first update is that while I have been lucky enough and my intimate family and friends have been lucky enough to not be directly impacted by getting sick with COVID, as an immunocompromised person, it has been quite a journey to navigate this pandemic time and also as a parent. Um, And so I recently uh, with my family moved away from Brooklyn. We left Brooklyn, which we were hoping was going to be our home for quite some time. And we moved back to Western Massachusetts and I am now someone who is residing on Nipmuc and Pakumtuk indigenous land. I am in the process of kind of deepening my understanding of what it means to be engaged in homeownership on stolen land and to the extent that I can learn about and deepen my knowledge about uh, reparations, I am very open and learning about that. I also open it up to my audience. If folks have suggestions or ideas about reparations, particularly in this geographical area, I would love to connect about that. So DM me at living in this queer body, or you can always reach out over email at uh, living in this queer body at gmail.com. So yes, I've moved during a pandemic and I am about to have a big birthday. Uh, Virgo season is upon us and I'm hanging in there. 
I've been developing alongside kind of getting back into the groove of doing these full-length interviews. I've been developing my program, Embodied Testimony, that will really be run only once a year. So um, I ran a version of it last this past spring, and it will start on September 27th. And it's a four-month program intensive exploring the barriers to embodied ease with a particular focus on intimacy, desire, and erotics. It's definitely going to be an opportunity to address the impact of internalized ableism, healthism, nutritionism, settler colonialism, internalized white supremacy, and anti-Blackness on our queer bodies. There will also be opportunities if you'd like to work with me one-on-one alongside the program intensive that will be a group program. It's going to be structured. Uh, We will meet as a group six times virtually. There will be a lot of work opportunities for development, journaling, reading, collaborating between our sessions. I think Based on what I've heard from all of you and from the people who've already registered, you want to know how to get to joy, to feel pleasure and ease. You you want to understand the internal, intergenerational, and structural or social barriers to embodiment. You want to feel less alone in your queerness and the specificity of your queerness. And you want to discover more about how to express and embody the specificity of your gender and sexuality. You want to learn to honor and not punish your body. And I can't promise that we'll figure all these things out over the course of a couple of months, but I think that it might be really cool to try to do it together. And who knows, maybe you know, something both on an individual and collective level could come out of this. I think people could make an art project, write an article, make a film, do a zine, form a band, you know, I don't know. I I love the idea of pulling together really amazing people. And from thus far, the people who have registered, um, I'm just... I'm so looking forward to it. So just the specifics, if you want to find out more, there will be um, info in the program notes. The program begins on September 27th. The early bird discounted registration ends September 1st. So if you want to get in on that, you can um, go to the link in my Instagram bio um, and fill out a form and you will get uh, heavily discounted um, access to the program. I'm accepting the first 30 applicants. If you want to learn more about the program, you can go to livinginthisqueerbody.com and look at the program intensive uh, part of the website. So with all of that being said, those are my updates. I'm really glad to have you with me on this kind of new iteration of interviews. I have some pretty amazing people lined up um, to speak to. And I think just kind of connecting to what I'm 
attempting to create space for in embodied testimony and the living in this queer body project as a whole is a real earnest and dedicated space of self-inquiry and self-interrogation as a means towards more embodied trust that I think ultimately can really lead to to collective liberation. <laughs> that's that's really what I believe. And that's why I do the psychotherapy work I do. And it's why I started this project. And I think that's particularly why I'm just so honored to have Lamarad Owens as our guest today on the podcast. Uh, Lamarad Owens is an author, activist, and authorized Lama Buddhist teacher in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism, and is considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. He holds a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School and is a co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. He also is the author of the recently published book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. It is essential reading for everyone who wants to do this kind of work towards individual and collective liberation. I cannot say enough about how beautiful and helpful this book is. You can purchase it, you can uh, listen to the audiobook, and you can find out a lot about um, everything that Lamarad Owens is doing on his Instagram at Lamarad Owens. As a Black queer man, Lamarad really, really has an interesting perspective on this idea of like when denied or oppressed, unconscious anger can have a negative impact um, with destructive consequences in our lives, in our collective world. But when recognized and used mindfully, it can be a positive source of vitality, courage, and dedication, as well as a powerful mobilizing factor in our solidarity and commitment to enacting social change. What is needed, Owen says, is a relationship to the heartbreak of anger that is embodied, non-destructive, and deeply healing for all. I am honored that Lamarad Owens took the time to speak with us, and I really hope you enjoy this interview. Thank you all for listening. So, Lamarad, thank you so much for being on the Living in This Queer Body podcast. You are a very honorable and just like, I feel like the total embodiment of a lot of the things that this podcast is often trying to address. So I'm really excited to kind of like dig into some of these questions and 
dilemmas with you. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. First of all, and I, and I will say this kind of um, ahead of the, you know, in the intro to the interview, but I just want to let everyone know that you recently published a book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger, and we'll be kind of talking about it, around it. I certainly have have read it and and think everyone who's listening should read it or listen to it. I love the audio book option. Partly this conversation, hopefully we can talk about the book, but also talk about some of the things that have, some of the questions that have emerged, at least for me, while after reading it. So with all that being said, I guess I wanted to start with the question that I ask most of my interviewees, which is, you know, when you think about your early, earliest memories or early childhood, were there any messages or, yeah, early memories of learning about what it meant to be in a body or to have a body? There are two, two kind of memories and messages that, that come to mind. I think one is like this general kind of cultural thing where in my family and in my community, it felt like you were only valued if you use your body in terms of sports, mm. right? <laughs> you know? Oh my God, I can totally relate. I, yeah. I had, okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I was born into a super athletic family. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it was uncomfortably athletic I mean it's just like my cousin like all of my cousins uncles everyone like everyone was like high school athlete stars and Mm -hmm. like many of them went on to to play sports in college you know um my dad went on to West Point Mm. to play football you know Mm. and my mom played everything softball um, she, um, she did basketball wow. and she was very active, you know, wow. for many years. Um, and, and so then I was born, you know, <laughs> and I was just like, I don't really like these sports, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? And I remember, you know, um, getting into like little league baseball and doing like a season of football and just hated it. Mm. You know, I was like, I was not interested in using my body in that mm-hmm. way, you know. And of course, looking back, I have like all of this like critique and insight into like what was actually happening in terms of embodying having a black body and what that meant in this mm-hmm. culture and historically what black bodies have meant and the mm-hmm. things that we've had to do in order to feel as if we have a place in this country, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I get that now, but back then I was like, nah, you know, so I became an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I became an academic. Um, I was a musician. Uh, I was a poet. Um, and so those are the things that I began to really strive in. So that was the first thing, right? Mm. But the second, the second thing that really actually helped me understand that like, oh, I have this body with these experiences and it's exciting, you know? And I learned that the first time I masturbated, mm-hmm. you know, intentionally when I was maybe 12 or 13, mm-hmm. right? You know, when I, 
you know, I was having wet dreams for a while and I was just like really scared of that. I was like, what's mm-hmm. happening? My body is like breaking. It's like stuff yeah. is like seeping out of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this magic fluid from somewhere, you know, like, of course I didn't have like sex education. Like, of course we didn't, you know, this was mm-hmm. the 80s, you know, mm-hmm. in the 90s. Right. But, you know, I started watching porn, you know, when mm-hmm. I was like young, you know, this is VHS porn right <laughs> you had to really seek it out it had to like yeah i had to seek it out yeah. you know and like have a vcr mm-hmm. you know um and so i started watching and like that started teaching me about bodies and eroticism mm-hmm. and sex i was like oh this is what sex is <laughs> you know this mm-hmm. is what happens and what i noticed was how my body reacted seeing that and of course this is like you know straight hetero porn back then Mm -hmm. but there was still a deep reaction and so i was like oh i'm gonna like figure out how to intentionally create these sensations in my body you know Mm. so like i just started for the first time i like masturbated and it was like my body woke up the first time i was like oh this is my body this is the capacity of my body to experience pleasure you know, and I will never be the same again. Mm. <laughs> you know, and it was the, the 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 beginning of the reclaiming my body and my eroticism and my pleasure. And of course, like from there, it was like, of course, a super rocky journey, you know, learning how to work through gender and sexuality and eroticism, you know, in mm-hmm. a way that felt restorative and generative and liberatory. Uh, but that was the beginning when I was like mm-hmm. 13 masturbating. Mm-hmm. And loving and it, it. Mm-hmm. it sounds like in some way you didn't have, at least for a moment, and maybe it was just a moment, but that there wasn't a lot of judgment or meaning attached to that experience of pleasure in your body. And that maybe that came later or... That- it absolutely came later because yeah. I, I really didn't grow up with messages around what I should and shouldn't do mm-hmm. in terms of eroticism and sexuality, you know. Um, so when I discovered porn, you know, and I found porn, you know, um, really all over the place, really, you know, in the homes and places of family, you know, and mm-hmm. friends. Um, and when I started looking at that, like, I didn't feel as if I was doing something wrong. I felt as if I was, like, waking up. Mm. something i felt like i was being educated about something that like no one had taken the time Mm -hmm. to educate me about Mm -hmm. um of course the shame came after that when i began to get older move through my teens where you know i started getting these messages that oh you know you know good boys don't watch porn good boys don't masturbate Mm. i began to realize that like you know I, I didn't grow up. I, I lived with my mom, you mm-hmm. know, and I would visit my dad on breaks. And so even in both places with my mom and my dad, like I began to get these subtle messages of that they knew what I was doing, mm. you know, and that began the shame because like they wouldn't talk to me about it. They would never said, oh, this is great. This is what one does. This is like natural, you know, it just yeah. wasn't. I just didn't, wasn't talked about, you know? Um, <laughs> and so that really started like deepening the shame, <laughs> you know? Um, and then of course I started, you know, connecting to 
my queerness, you know, my attraction to other boys and so mm-hmm. forth. And that really begins to intensify everything as well. Yeah. You know, and everything just started crashing in, mm. you know, um, on top of, you know, when, when I realized that I was gay and queer and realizing that for me, queerness or gayness was deeply aligned with AIDS and HIV and death, mm-hmm. yes. you know, and that intertwined together in, into this thing where I was like, oh, my sexuality will lead to death. Right. And that was like, that's when everything really crystallized for me into a real intense trauma. Yeah. Into like a sense of being dirty and wrong, you know, and transgressive, not in the great way that I understand transgression transgression now, but like in a way that felt like, oh, I was just like bad Mm -hmm. to transgress what was considered normal and right. Right. And virtuous. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how even just the words you're using, like the the kind of initial experience of waking up, waking up yeah. to my body, and then, then sexuality and sex can kind of then get internalized as, you know, death, essentially, or a danger of death. I mean, sex and death, we talk about that a lot. But, you know, really, this is like a much, you know, this is a really... A complex experience of your body and your sexuality as we all have. I mean, many of us have, but, you know, I appreciate you kind of explaining how that, how that played out for you. And maybe in in a little bit, we can talk about, you know, sort of where you are with that now um, Mm -hmm. in your adult life. I guess when you talk about the fact that that felt like or landed as a, a sort of body trauma, yeah. the shame, the mm-hmm. fear, the dirtiness, the, all of those things. You know, mm-hmm. I one of the things that I was really struck by in your book is is the way that you weave through the through all throughout all of it the idea of embodiment yeah. and how the embodiment as the pathway yeah. um as the pathway towards um liberation in yeah. a lot of ways. And so I guess Part of my question, though, I think is is rooted in what I know of the people who listen to this podcast and my own experience and in a lot of ways is, you know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way in which you, you know, both as a practitioner, as a teacher, mm-hmm. think about trauma in the body and ha- and the w- the barriers to kind of being able to access a, a feeling or a sensation of you know being in one's body and yeah. and I don't think of that personally as yeah. kind of like a singular experience you know it's like yeah. a you know it's a complex experience but right. I, I I just wonder what you think about that yeah absolutely and I I think for me my kind of relationship to trauma for me and my body is really rooted within transhistorical trauma. Yeah. Um, as, as someone who is descendant from enslaved people. Yes. Um, I began to realize as I got older that like part of this transhistorical trauma was this, this kind of belief that I had no agency over my body, mm. that my body was actually owned. Right. Mm. You know, that other like that white people had much more agency over my body than I could ever have yeah. over my body. And for me, that trauma 
in that in that particular instance manifest as you know being afraid of my body because it wasn't yeah. mine you know and and not only mm. that like there was a fear of actually trying to practice agency over my body because you know like i felt like i had to get permission you know and mm. if i even asked for for permission i wouldn't get that permission mm. the determine the course, the expression of my body that was appropriate for me. You know, so I lived with that for many years as this expression of trauma. So I would never get anywhere near my body. You know, mm-hmm. like I just felt like I could do nothing <laughs> with my body mm-hmm. except, except like, I don't know, like use it to please white people. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and that was early on. Early on, I noticed that that was a part of why I was intentionally choosing to be with white lovers. Yeah. You know, because something in my mind was like, oh, my body is for other white men. Yeah. You know, not for myself, certainly not for other black, you know, and, and, you know, other men of color, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, no, mm-hmm. this is my body's for white men. I had to like, through the practice, through meditation, really kind of cut through that, mm. you know, and so when I started actually turning my attention back to the body, I began to see, oh, like my, for me, my body is really dangerous because I have yes. never, I have never developed a relationship with it, mm-hmm. you know? And so I had to start this process of befriending my body, mm-hmm. you know, and just and initially that was about giving a lot of space to like how my body was expressing itself. Um, and learning how to like gently, gradually just explore really simple sensations, you mm. know, in my body. Um, and of course, sex had been such an important part of, of my embodiment. So that naturally began to be something that I focused on, you know, I was yeah. like, okay, eroticism is something that I can walk into really easily. Okay, let's just use eroticism to actually begin to re-enter my body in a, in a holistic, liberatory way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's why I ha- this is why I understand sex to be potentially such a liberatory expression mm-hmm. for us, you know? Mm-hmm. I can use pleasure as a way to hold the discomfort that I experience in other parts, you know, of my experience, not just in my mind, but also in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just been really a gradual process over the years. I've had a lot of help. You know, I've had, you know, my own meditation practice, but I've also had the really profound um, methods within, you know, my lineage, which is tantric Buddhism, you know, mm. mm-hmm. which is like lots of ritual, lots of chanting, lots of energy work, right? Lots of movement, lots of working with deities and that all has come together in a way that has helped me to really experience this being at home, my body. Mm. And that's what mm-hmm. I write about. Like this, yeah. this feeling of like, what does it feel like to be at home? I mean, I think this is as a psychotherapist and someone who kind of works in, around the intersection of trauma and the body. I think, you know, what I'm, one of the things I'm struck by what, what you're saying is just that, there's a, there's a discourse that kind of, it's a pretty, it's like a bypassing discourse where, you know, it's like, let's return to the home that we have of our bodies, right? Like as if there's this pure, you know, um, and, and 
what I appreciate and I, you know, it's, it's a kind of a devastating and extremely difficult course to navigate. And as a white person, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know what this is and Mm -hmm. what it feels like, but you know, when you talk about trans historical trauma in the context of being a black man Mm -hmm. there, it just, what I think you're taught, what I hear you talking about is the fact that there is the home that you are supposed to return to is a very fraught place. Yes. Yes. It's a home that I never believed was mine to begin with. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so Mm. the work actually is, is turning back to that home and reclaiming it. Right. And that becomes like a a liberation struggle in itself, Mm. (laughs) you know, Mm. To, to, to say, this is my body, actually. Yeah, and it hurts. There are a lot of things happening that I don't want to show up to. But my first work is to say, regardless, this is my body. And when I say that this is my body, I'm actually reclaiming it from, like, white supremacy mm-hmm. and white supremacist imagination mm-hmm. around my body, you know, to claim that agency, mm. you know, is so important, important in, in terms of the healing. Yeah. Towards liberation. Yeah. I guess that that fraught body space or um is is kind of is really linked to what you talk about in your book with anger and rage, you know, when you talk about the idea of or when I think about white supremacy and the the kind of idea that white supremacy promotes the belief that it's okay for white people to be angry. It's actually safe and encouraged. And that the idea of kind of you accessing all of these, I'm using the word fraught, but it, you know, this, this like complex space within yourself of um, trans historical trauma of righteous anger mm-hmm. Um and leaning into that and learning from that as as a way an entry point in into embodiment that embodiment is not like a kind of what i think a lot of people perceive buddhism to be is is some sort of mindfulness mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. to be like a kind of peaceful place right um, right yeah mm-hmm. and that maybe you could just talk a little bit more about how kind of the practice of confronting or in, in engaging with anger actually has um, been one of the entry points for yeah. you towards yeah. liberation. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been really concerned with embodied anger, you know, because mm. this embodied anger is really actually quite violent. Quite yeah. dangerous, you know? Right. Um, and for me, mm. embodied anger is, me actually noticing my anger within the context of my woundedness, mm. you know? And so it's like, yes, I am experiencing anger, but beneath that anger is the woundedness, the hurt. Right. And mm. that's where I want to go and tend to. I want to tend to the woundedness, mm. you know? And I think that like, when we talk about this idea of white rage, white rage is like just disembodied rage, anger. Yeah. You know, that's not embodied because white supremacy is actually uh, uh, an expression of trauma, you know, and it's an expression of disembodiment, Mm. you know, because the body actually keeps this record of what it has cost 
for white people to invest in whiteness. Yeah. You know, um, that the body itself is not racialized. You know, it's that the body isn't this racialized phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, um, whiteness is this phenomenon that's like yeah. imparted on bodies, you know, or racialization in general, you know, whiteness, blackness, what have you, you know. And so the body is having a different reality. The body is just recording the trauma that racialization you know, creates for us, right? And so in order to free us to experience liberation, we have to turn back the body, back to the woundedness. And that's extremely hard to do, you know, to do, to undo white, I can't undo, I can't undo white supremacy. Yeah. Because white supremacy isn't my experience. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, but to undo for white folks to undo white supremacy, it takes white folks turning back to the body, mm-hmm. begin to tend to the woundedness and the trauma that has accumulated because of the racialization, racialization of whiteness and the power, you know, and the hierarchy that that mm-hmm. racialization demands. Yeah, you know, that is unnatural. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's the only way, but that's such a difficult thing to do. But at the same time, I also demand that it should be done. So it's like, you know, I I relate to that, too, in terms of patriarchy, too, because I know mm-hmm. that, like, yes, I am a cisgender man, and I've been conditioned within the system of hierarchy and power. But also, for me, a deeper expression of patriarchy is categorizing and labeling, you know, the ways in which I've been labeled and categorized and told to, to stay put, uh. you know, in certain categories and labels and how, you know, just like this is what a man is. So yeah. a, a man is someone who isn't emotional, who isn't mm-hmm. adaptive and fluid, who isn't feminine, mm-hmm. you know, a man who is someone who is strong, and the, the cornerstone and the head of the family and these messages that I've gotten over and over again, you know, and I think that like, I have to, to, to resist that and to challenge that by actually entering into fluidity, right? Mm-hmm. Entering into my emotional body, mm-hmm. entering into emotional labor for myself and for others around me. That's how I challenge patriarchy. But like that is all about returning back to my body, letting my body tell me, about the work that I need to do, mm. you know, in order to be, to, to transcend, mm. you know, the categories, mm-hmm. the rigidity, really, that patriarchy yeah. demands of us, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is just trauma. That rigidity is just trauma. Mm-hmm. And how trauma reinforces trauma. Mm. You know, um, yeah. but that's, this is the work that we do individually for ourselves. This is also the work that we have to do collectively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's both, but we all have to do our own work, you know, and with the support and help of our collective as well. Yeah, I was curious, like in turn, what have been supporting you um, in in doing this work individually? Because yeah. it is deeply, I don't know, we need support in yeah. doing the work as yeah. you as you're describing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's it's being with other people 
who are doing the work as well. <laughs> yes. You know, like yes. you have to, like you really, I tell people this all the time, you have to, if you want to experience some type of liberation or movement, you have to surround yourself with people who are moving in the same direction you are. Mm. You know, like you can't, you know, particularly our friends, right? You know, we can't be surrounded by friends who are just like, why are you doing this? Mm. You know, yeah. why are you thinking about this? Why are you reading that? Why are we talking about this? Can we just like chill, you know, you know, and it's peer yes. pressure is yeah. like the one thing that restricts us from liberation, mm. you know, and our, and our intense longing to be, to belong. Yeah in these relationships and in these, you know, friend groups, you know, and we have to, we have to let go of that if mm. we want to be free. But if, as you let go of that, it doesn't mean that like, Oh, you become friendless. It means that like you actually begin to migrate into communities and friends and relationships who, where people are doing the work that you're doing. And then you begin to support one another. Yeah. You know? And when I think about like patriarchy, for instance, it's been, my relationships with other men or masculine performing folks and gender non-conforming folks, you know, who are like really deeply embodied in masculinity that have like actually helped me begin to experience a different way to be in my body in terms of like fluidity and adapting and emotional labor. Mm. Um, Intimacy is for me the key. Intimacy, you know, with other men and masculine identified folks, you know, intimacy Intimacy, because like intimacy has been restricted for those of us who are really like com- being indoctrinated in patriarchy, mm-hmm. you know, like, and so developing intimate relationships, not necessarily sexual relationships, you know, mm-hmm. but intimate relationships with, with other male identified masculine folks has been really the key to this. Mm. you know for me as well like i to to touch into each other's emotional space and to hold one another and to tend to each other and doing this work for each other not forcing other folks to do work on our behalf without their consent Mm -hmm. you know i think that's critical it's key you know it's like this whole like joke that we have about like um romances (laughs) you know um that's just, you know, we make jokes about that, but like, you know, we're all, I think men have been struggling to find ways to touch one another, mm-hmm. you know, and not get labeled with this kind of like gay shame or queer, you know, queer phobia, mm-hmm. you know, and I also think sports, you know, talk, you know, thinking about the ways in which I have been thinking differently about sports. Mm-hmm. You know, I think sports is another way for men to express intimacy. Right, the erotics of all of the touching. And yeah, the, the, yeah, the all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that. You know, um, I just think that like it's important, but we have to take a step further and to say, you know, no, this is I want to touch other men emotionally, yes. physically. Mm-hmm. I want to be held by other men. Mm. You know. Um, and I want to explore all the manifestations and expressions of who I am in terms of sexuality and gender, mm. you know, to cut through that rigidity, rigidity. So, yeah, it reminds me when you were talking, it reminds me of, um, I think it was an Instagram post that you, you know, you 
said something like, you know, this is my grinder. I'm thinking about having this be my grinder profile pick or something along those lines. And it made me think, and I wonder what you have to say about this, but it made me think about kind of what you're maybe currently or in general right now playing with in terms of that maybe fluidity or what you're learning about your, your body. And through that, the exploration with, you know, other um, masculine identified folks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really, you know, one of the things I'm playing with is contradiction, mm-hmm. you know, which I love. Like I, you know, <laughs> and, and, and it's not like a performance. It's just kind of how it is. It's like, yes, I am this like spiritual leader and this authority and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And like highly trained in the lineage and all that. That's wonderful. But also still really like having fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and also, I, you know, and I also am interested in having a full personal life. And that full personal life means that, like, yeah, I'm on the apps. Yep. You know, um, am I 100% okay with the apps in general? No. Am I 100% okay with me being on the apps? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, you can practice discernment. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful opportunity yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is why I love queerness because yes. this is, it's just like I want to enter into spaces where I can be contradictory. I can be a contradiction, mm-hmm. you know, and have that contradiction held, you know. But I, I don't know if I look even deeper into that. It's not just being it's not necessarily about being a contradiction. It's just about being whole. You know, like yeah. it's about constantly trying to transgress all the ways in which I'm put into spaces and put into boxes and mm. places and saying, you know, actually, I don't belong here. Like this doesn't being in this little space actually is intending completely to to all the parts of who I am. Yes. It's intersectionality. Yes. Really. It's like I I am this 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 cross section of all these different things, identities and locations, you know, and I have to honor that. If I don't honor that, then I actually become really dangerous myself and for others, because if I don't honor all of my identity locations, then there are parts of me that aren't being tended to. And then therefore I start doing things to act out. Right. Yeah. Right. That's like where the kind of yeah, dis, the disembodied or the dissociative anger or the, you know, unconscious drives are really, really mm-hmm. powerful. And I think that's, I mean, just from a personal perspective, that's something that has drawn me to, or brought me back again and again to some kind of mindfulness practice is is just in that very fact of, working with myself and working with others who are, are driven by kind of unconscious drives um, and how dangerous that can be and how much violence we can, you know, um, enact upon ourselves too. um, And others, of course. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I have to, we we have to do that work for ourselves. You know, we have to Mm -hmm. like, and, 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 what really upsets me, you know, in terms of like, when I say upset in this case, I mean, what what I mourn and what I'm sad about uh, are people who don't,
don't have the resources to explore these parts of who and what they are. Mm. And, you know, and part of the resources, it's not material resources necessarily, it's the resource of, like, courage mm. and the resource of self-love and self-compassion. You know, these resources that we rely on in order to move into parts of who and what we are, um, which are not held warmly by our yes. cultures and our families and our communities. Mm-hmm. You know, so there are so many people who are living really, you know, to use this phrase, you know, in the closet, you know, um, and I think about, you know, the, the death and the murders of, of trans women of color, mm-hmm. you know, black and, and indigenous trans women of color and like how so much of this genocide comes from mostly men who do not have the resources to tend to their own desire, you know, to hold the the intense, you know, pressure that we get from others around us to be a certain way and not knowing how to reconcile the pressure that we get with our own desires to be in certain relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, and how that just like expresses itself as violence. I have been someone who has survived the violence, not the violence against me necessarily, though I have experienced that kind of violence, but mm-hmm. particularly I'm talking about the violence. I've, I'm a survivor of the ways in which I have been violent because I've not known how to hold my own desire with the pressures of my community to be a certain way. Mm. And this is why I show up in the way that I do in the world. Like you have to know that I don't give a shit about what you want me to be, you know, because if I started valuing the, the rigidity that you're forcing me into, then I will resort into not being cared for. And therefore I will begin to express violence. Against myself and against others who remind me of the ways that I want to be. You know? Um, and that is, I say that so, <laughs> so lightly and so straightforward, but that has taken decades of work to get to. Mm-hmm. to, get to you know? And then yeah. again, this is all about embodiment. Like, this is about the ways in which I have struggled intensely. I, I have invested countless resources into this work of embodiment. You know, my embodiment work has been, like, my primary project this past 20 years mm. of my life. You know, and it has made the difference. To be, to be in this body at, at the age of 40. I'm almost 41, you know? Like, to be really 41 now, you know, and in the second part of my life, having this feeling of, this experience of being at home, mm. you know? And, and you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but another thing that I, I mourn is working with men who are my age or older who are just, beginning to do the work that I've been doing for like 20 years. Yeah. You know, I, I celebrate that. 
you know, and I am like really happy about that, but there's also sadness, <laughs> you know, because the older we get, the harder it is. Yeah. You know, and that's just kind of re- of a reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so I, I want to be an example for folks that regardless of how hard it is and regardless of what age we are, we can still do the work and start the work and continue the work, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely any age it's important to do. Mm. Yeah. The experience of even as fleeting as it maybe sometimes feels the experience of being home in one's body and the way that you describe and the effort and the dedication that you've kind of invested into the project of embodiment. It it feels like it is not just, you know, as so many really brilliant minds like Adrian Marie Brown and mm-hmm. Prentice Hemphill come to yeah. mind. Like they're, yeah. you know, we're talking about pleasure and the body and in any kind of marginalized, historically marginalized bodies, but also it's the work is as you, I think are really pointing out. And I, I appreciate this, that it's, it's work for yourself and it's work that serves is of service to the collective it is you know kind of circumventing violence it's circumventing like unconscious or dissociated non-embodied violence towards the self and others and so it is it is you know collective liberatory work and I think you know you 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 embody, then you literally embody that in, in your presence and in, in your words. And also, you know, in the way that you, um, in the way that you write in, in your, in your most recent book, um, it really speaks to how important this work is, not just for one's own, you know, kind of, um, pleasure, contentment, uh, transgressive, Mm -hmm. um, but also the collective liberation. Right. And mm-hmm. that's it. At the end of the day, this is about the collective. Like I, I do the work. Yes. To, to, to be happy, to, sure. to be free, but I also do it because I want everyone else mm-hmm. to be happy and to be free. Yes. And that's, and that, that, that is the difference. And like when we talk about really transformative liberation struggles, like it's the liberation struggles that where we begin to link the individual work to the collective work, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just saying, oh, you know, I'm just going to get into the collective, into the community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like vicariously, whatever the community is doing is going to rub off on me. That's really not the, you know, that's not the strategy. Mm-hmm. It's like I have to be held responsible and held accountable for my own individual work. Yes. Of course, relying and getting support from others around me, but knowing that like this individual work is actually about lifting the collective up. Mm. You know? Um and it's so many of us are just really afraid of that. Like it's we talk about the body, we talk about this internal work, but I know how impossible this may sound and seem to many people. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. I I have like I have journeyed into some real nightmares <laughs> in my mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I have done you know, and move through this, you know, going into the heart of trans historical trauma, Mm. you know, and my lineage and my ancestry. Like, I know what that is, you know, Um, and I've written about that, Mm -hmm. too, you know, in in Love and Rage, but I have other writing coming out where I'm actually specifically talking about what that has meant for me. And I know that brutality, the nightmare, and I know that, like, what it costs. Mm. And that's another thing, too. I think that we have to be really honest about what the work costs, Mm. you know, and we have to be, we have to have the conversation about what we're willing to give up to offer, to do Mm. the work, you know. Um, You know, for me, it, it has meant, yeah, like, I have... In my family, I became, you know, that, that I, I became the person in my family where people were like, um, what? <laughs> 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 you know, I'm the one that I'm the one in my family who joined the cult. I'm right. the one in my family who left Christianity. I'm the one who's living this really intense, whatever life, you know? Yeah. And, but I'm also the one who is actually experiencing freedom, Mm. happiness. Mm -hmm. I'm the one people are coming to for support and advice and guidance, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the one who is able to translate what this work is for people, you know? Like, we we all have to do very different things. I I have a, a very specific thing, a very specific path, that path is defined and and directed by my need in the moment. I guess I surrender to the work that I need to do in the moment and the resources that arise for me in the moment to use. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter how intense that looks, I've written a lot about that in Radical Dharma and Love and Rage. Like, yes, this is what I've done. You know, these are the teachers and the gurus and like, you know the you know the the sorceresses and the wizards and yeah. you know these are the things that I've done and I'm okay with that. Mm. Granted, like early on doing some of this shit, it was just like, um, hmm, you know, what the fuck is this? You mm. know, but then you're like, oh, but this is like this. These are things that colonialism has disrupted. Mm. You know, these are the ways in which, for me, growing up in Christianity, Christianity has labeled these indigenous ancestral magic, plant medicine traditions to be evil. And like that blocking of these methods actually perpetuates my oppression within the system. Mm-hmm. You know, because the real tools of transformation have been conveniently and intentionally blocked for me and labeled evil and unaccessible. Mm-hmm. So I crossed that line, 
you know, you cross the line back into the expression of the unseen world and how mm-hmm. the unseen world is trying to liberate us. Mm-hmm. Just pay attention, you know, and becoming a person who's able to be a facilitator between the, the living world and the unseen world, you know, is also a way that I continue my liberation work and to continue to help others to get liberated. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Maybe we could just, you know, we're running a bit mm-hmm. to time, but I guess okay. I, I wonder if maybe you could just speak a little bit about what what feels like, what is something or what are some of the things that you have discovered mm-hmm. that are, that you feel like were blocked or um, kept away from you or shamed out of existence and and relegated to the unseen world that have been serving you as tools Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. definitely my connection to the ancestors Mm. Mm -hmm. you know i didn't grow up with that that idea you Mm -hmm. know um but i've been able to reconnect to my ancestors and to develop this relationship and it's been transformative Mm -hmm. for me um and you know, and just you know, reconnecting to the land, mm. right? You know, reconnecting to the ways in which the world is, in the physical world is being cared for by beings, deities, spirits, and I can develop a relationship with them, and we can develop this collaboration. You know, and that's how I see all of this. Like, like yeah. we, you know, it's yeah. it's to cut through this like colonized white supremacist worldview means that I have to enter into an alternative or a, a, a traditional ancestral world, worldview that sees me as living with and collaborating with, not dominating, yes. not manipulating, mm-hmm. but living with, mm-hmm. you know, um, we, to live with the land, right? To live with plant medicine, right? To be an ally with yeah. plant medicine, um, to to live with the ancestors and to be in collaboration with the ancestors, right? Where you're helping the ancestors, the ancestors are helping you. And mm-hmm. also to be preparing the ground for the descendants to enter back to this physical world. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, that has so deeply, you know, transformed me. Um, and I'm in the process of reconnecting to my indigenous ancestry as well. Mm. Um, and that's another, that's another thing that's been barred from us. Like, you know, I grew up in Georgia, North Georgia, um, on Cherokee land, you know, Creek and Cherokee land, um, in the area of one of the staging grounds for the Trail of Tears, mm. mm-hmm. you know? And so my family has all of these narratives, you know, and mythologies around our era, you know, Native American ancestry, and I want to find and reconnect to that ancestry, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so those are the things, you know, those yeah. are some of the things that have been blocked yeah. for me. Yeah. That I'm reclaiming. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, as we're out of running out of time, I, I just want to ask you one, one last question, mm-hmm. which is kind of returning to the beginning of our, our interview. You know, if you could, if you could go back and and speak with that kind of younger version of yourself, is there 
any thoughts or wisdom or learning that you would want to convey the yeah. younger version of you? Mm. <laughs> I think, I think I would definitely say it gets better. It yes. will get better. Um, mm. I don't think it gets better for everyone, mm. you know, but for me, I would definitely say it's going to definitely get a lot better. Mm. Yeah. I, would, I would say that like, it's going to be really hard for me to believe how much better it gets. Mm. You know, I, so much of like in the up until like maybe my mid thirties, you know, which is maybe six or seven years ago, actually up until like my early thirties, I would say. So the past 10 years is like, it was like living in darkness yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden the light switched on. Mm. And I was like, oh, what the fuck? And that was the a watershed moment for me where all the work in my 20s into my early 30s just began to like produce this wisdom, this openness, mm-hmm. this spaciousness. But it was really hard work, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, like it's just worth it. Like, I, that's the last <laughs> thing I would just say. It's like yeah. everything that you're doing matters. It's mm. worth it. You may not understand what you're doing and why you're going through this, but this will end up being the foundation of how we will experience liberation as we move into the middle part of our life. Mm. Well, Lamarad, thank you so much for for showing up with such openness to this interview. I really appreciate it, and I really hope that everyone tries who feels called tries to um connect with your work um because it's it's been very helpful for for me and a lot of people thank you so much this has been so beautiful to be having this conversation Mm. thank you thank you for your work as well Mm. 